Hey, folks, welcome back to In the Chill Tonight, episode number 12. Hey, folks, before I forget, please check out our parent website, which is www.rffactor.com. There you're going to find leadership stories, uh, or I should say leadership concepts, leadership insight, and then, of course, the In the Chill Tonight true crime stories that that Pete and I have been recording. So, hey, Pete, how you doing? Good, good, good. And listen, everybody could uh, come for the concepts, but stay for the stories, you know? <laughs> I love when you say that. And we're going to, uh, we're going to Columbia tonight. Yes, huh? we should put some music on for that. Uh, very excited about this. Tonight, we're joined by Toby Muse. And I hope I said his name right. When he comes on, we're going to find out. Toby is an author, foreign correspondent, and documentary filmmaker. He grew up in London uh, before he moved to Bogota. Uh, wait, Bogota. Uh, uh, there's a, a town nearby that they say it uh, different than, than Bogota, and that's nearby me where I live. But needless to say, he reported on South America uh, for about 15 years, so he knows the the inside, the outside of the drug trade, the Colombian drug trade in that area of the world. And that's why I was excited about having him come on. I was super excited when he said yes, that he'd come on. Pete, we've been speaking a lot about folks doing all sorts of investigations into organized crime, into gun trafficking, um, cold case homicides, uh, and now we're going to hear about drugs. And you and I both know how drugs fuel so much of the crime in across the world uh, for, gosh, a uh, long time. So needless to say, looking very much uh, forward to hearing from our guest, Toby Muse. Going to bring him on here. Toby, I hope I said your last name correct. You did. You did. Toby Muse. So we're wow. good on that. Oh, phew. awesome. How you doing? Good, good, good. Thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to a good discussion. Again, thanks a lot for inviting me on. So look, the uh, the real reason I invited you on when, when I was looking at your bio, it uh, essentially said that you never decline an offer of rum from strangers. That's right. So Exactly. So I'm a big Captain Morgan guy. So uh, you had me at hello there. How you doing? Yeah. You know, the one to try, the one I recommend to everyone is the Santa Teresa 1796, the finest rum on the planet. That's a Venezuelan rum. It's phenomenal stuff. Just I, I'm, I'm writing that down. <laughs> Santa Teresa 1796. You can get it in America. Wow. Um, there's a place in Washington, D.C. where I now live. That liquor store sells it. You won't regret it. Absolutely. All right. Sounds good. It's usually more of a summertime drink for me, but uh, I'll have to try that now as we uh, we're into autumn here. So let's go for it. So you've how, been how do you freelance- drink it? I'm sorry. Well, how do you drink it? Tell us how you drink oh, it. Always by itself with just uh, uh, ice in it. Don't mix it with anything. It's too good. It's like a fine whiskey at this point. The good rums deserve to be treated like a whiskey. They're complex. They're interesting. Smell them. And uh, yeah, if someone puts a Coca uh, Coca Cola in my rum. <laughs> so how long have you been a freelance uh journalist now 
close to 20 years now. Uh, in that time, I've also worked for certain places. I was an employee of the Associated Press for a few years in uh, Colombia. But I like being a freelance journalist. I like not having a boss. I like doing the stories I like to do. Uh, you can kind of set aside the time. You can travel to wherever you want. In that time, I've covered Iraq, uh, Syria, the wars in Iraq and Syria, Venezuela, Bolivia, Colombia. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I like it. There's a lot of freedom to the journey. How did you get started in freelance journalism? Like, what, like were you on that trajectory in, in high school and college? Like, what was, how did this all come about? I knew I wanted to be a journalist and kind of when you set out, there's kind of two ways. You can either go through the institutional way of like try and join your local paper. I was a writer at the beginning. I moved into TV later. You could do that and kind of, you know, starting with the intern or start at the absolute lowest level and work your way up. But, you know, there's a, you learn a lot, obviously you develop incredible connections, but I didn't want to report on transport. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not for me. You know, that's a really important topic. I wanted to get out there and do this job of being a foreign correspondent. Now, I could have tried to apply for a paper, or you just go to the country you want to live in, you want to report for, and you start just getting a lot of different sources of income. And some of them are really stupid. You know, you can work for magazines, do an article like Latin American bathrooms, but you know, it pays you money. <laughs> and then you get ready to kind of sell to the bigger magazines, the stories you want to do. And for a man, a young person setting out who wanted to be that foreign correspondent, Colombia was it. It was the dream. Because I've always thought being a foreign correspondent meant covering wars as well. So when I rock up to Colombia, it's in the depths of this brutal civil war, the pits, the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces mm, of Colombia. Very interesting. Against the government. And as for a young journalist, you've got this experience of hanging out with rebels in the mountains, interviewing the army, going with them, and you kind of got everything in between. So it was kind of really being thrown in at the deep end, but, you know, in a great story. So when I was a young detective, I read this book, The Fruit Palace, and I can't remember the author. I'm sure you're shaking your head, so I believe you know that book I'm talking about. And for me, it's, it sucked me into Colombia. I've never been there. I've heard so much about it uh, from a lot of folks that have worked down there, uh, particularly in the counter drug arena. And what the book sort of spells out um, is how it, depending on where you're at, is so different as well. Uh, whether you're in the, the the cities or you're actually up in up in the, I think it's the Andes, right, up in the mountains yep. there. So um, you shook your head. You know that book. There's a scene in that book where I think he, I don't know if he has malaria or something, he, or he's fighting off some kind of uh, uh, drug intoxication. But uh, what can you tell me about that? Well, that book is actually, for a long time, Colombia, when I got there, was still this very isolated country, I think, in the rest of the world, because it was quite ostracized, because it just goes through these waves of violence. That's changed in the last 15 years, but that's a very recent thing. For much of its recent history, it had a civil war called La Violencia, the violence. So even by its own neighbors in the kind of sometimes unstable South America, Colombia was kind of given a wide berth. That country's crazy, the neighbors would say. <laughs> then you got it becoming like the center of the cocaine, um, the cocaine um, industry. And again, it got this reputation for violence. So the Fruit Palace was one of the rare books about the country out there in the English language. It's written by an author, I think his name is Charles Nichols, who became, went on, I didn't realize, I only put, pieced it together later on, 
is a very serious Elizabethan author, author of uh, like uh, an expert on Shakespeare and his contemporaries. You're kidding. So he knows all about Elizabethan drama, but he writes this hilarious book about basically taking cocaine in Colombia. Yes. He kind of falls into the business. Now, the Fruit Palace refers to this hotel that I stayed at in the city of Santa Marta. That's it. Was it. The Hotel Miramar. That's it. But That's I don't it. think he used the name because for legal reasons. I stayed there and these were the kind of the worst of the foreigners, but the foreigners who were there for the drug trade, the stories of the overdoses, you would hear of these backpackers who just got so much cocaine and ended up overdosing on the beach in front. It was it was mental. That place was crazy, constant parties. And so he decided to write this book about his experience there. But it's a very funny book. I urge people to yes. uh, find it. So, so Toby, yeah. I'm interested. Tell us how you get to the belly of the beast. I mean, you just walk in. I mean, how do you do? You knock on the door. You get an invitation. Take us. No. Take us in. So I, I think there's a couple of things to kind of be clear about. To get to where the coca, so there's kind of different phases of the cocaine industry. So it starts off with this ugly green bush. To get to those farmers is really not difficult because the farmers and the rest of Colombian society doesn't consider them criminals. It's understood the poverty of the countryside and people just say, look, you're growing it. Not in the way that, you know, if you were growing something here, you would be considered a criminal. Culturally, you're just not in Colombia. So the farmers can often be quite welcoming because they say, look, come and see how we live. You know, you're going to see the reality of what our life is. You're going to see why we do this. Now, to get into the cartels, that's much, much more difficult. And that, for me, just ended up being luck. I met this man who kind of is really the center of the social world of the narcos. And that's a really important part of the whole cartel system. These parties where they go to, it's their chance to kind of really show off. It's their chance to show off their girlfriends. They have these huge parties in the places like Medellin, Cali, and the Caribbean coast. And I made friends with this guy who really operates in that world. And through him, I ended up meeting more and more people in that world. And every person would lead on to someone else. So the book I wrote, Kilo, really does kind of chart one kilo of cocaine from its production in the countryside wow. all the way through the cartel system and then to be exported out onto the Pacific Ocean. Meeting the drug traffickers, the police, the uh, American Coast Guard, everybody involved. And I didn't want to speak to any analysts or experts or anyone sitting behind a desk. I kind of demanded everybody in my book is a frontline participant. They're either there on the front line trying to stop cocaine or they're on the front line. They're pushing the kilo forward. No experts in my book. And I really, obviously, I touch on the drug war. You can't not do. And I kind of have my own opinions or about my own conclusions. But I really wanted to tell the stories of the men and women who were in this. These very bizarre stories that you find when you get into, as you say, the belly of the beast, the witch who performs spells for the, the cartel, the drug trafficker's girlfriend you know, the hitman, what he thinks about. And I really wanted to kind of bring all of these things together and show a kind of, not a, show the men and women who are the narcos of 2021. Everybody kind of has an idea of Pablo Escobar, the Cali cartel. Well, what do those types of people look like today? And that was kind of the uh, the idea for the book. So so the, uh, the people that you were introduced to at these parties, do they know, did they know that you're going to be writing stories about them? It's a very good question. Sometimes, yes, it was really important to 
announce exactly who I was. So when you're out at one problem, not problem, one concern when I was out in the countryside where the cocaine is actually made is there's these new narco militias. These are organizations that have uniforms, they have heavy arms, and they call themselves militias, they call themselves revolutionaries, but they're much more, they're almost entirely focused on producing and trafficking cocaine. But many of them still have a, a, a kind of political ideology. It's really important that they know I'm a journalist when I turned up to these small towns where they're in control, because otherwise there could be a confusion. There could be, um, there could be, they could think I'm DEA, they could think I'm the CIA. So you really want to announce, you want to shout out, hey, I'm a journalist working. When we went to these big parties, these are in these kind of nightclubs of Medellin. And I do wonder what people thought, because these narco parties, you walk in there, there's a vibe. If you're like on just a date night with your girlfriend, you walk in, you walk right out. <laughs> you don't have to be told. You know it. You feel it. So everybody there is involved. Everybody. You're either in it. You're either comfortable enough to go with your friends who were in it and you know what your friends do or you're the girlfriend of someone who's in it. And it just, so I wonder what they thought as I walked around with my friends, but you know, there were enough of us around there uh, that, you know, we never had problems and, you know, I would get weird looks from people, but honestly, it wasn't even bad looks. It was more just like, like just surprise or puzzlement, like as if I was a panda bear in the middle of the dance floor, just like, <laughs> you know, where's this guy? Uh, but, you know, I, on the whole, I was treated pretty well. There were obviously some incidents, you know, when you're, you know, you, you you're in, precarious situations you know that these militia guys around us got drunk one night and one of them kind of just said you know drunkenly you know i'm gonna kill this gringo son of a bitch not to me and he was like but you know he shouted it he wanted me to hear but he was 10 meters away um and you know you just kind of got to sit to one side let it pass and because you're in the middle of nowhere there's nothing you could do you know i mean there was nothing <laughs> i could have done and, you know, things like that would happen across this. And this book is really a condensation of like 15 years of reporting, really taking out these these anecdotes and these incredible people I met over that time. So you follow you follow a kilo of cocaine from 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 production through processing and transportation. Do you want to take us through that a bit? Sure, absolutely. So it starts you can really divide my book up into three it, by when I looked back, I realized it was this convenient third, third, third. So you start out in the countryside. Again, this is a part that the central government has never really had control. I start in a land called Catatumbo, which is northeastern Colombia, up on the border with Venezuela. Now, that's indigenous for the land of lightning, because there are more lightning strikes in Catatumbo than anywhere else on the planet. So every single night, starting around 10 o'clock, would be the largest thunderstorm I had ever heard until the one the next night, which was even louder. Those thunderstorms where you think it's the end of the world, where it's just light white because the lightning is so close. That's where the coca's grown. Did you did you get used there. to those thunderstorms? They're too loud to get used to. I mean, and I'll be honest, because they kind of move, it reminded me of being in Syria. And what would happen in Syria? I was in Aleppo when they were fighting. They would fire artillery in Syria. And it was obviously this game where they would just kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining this, but they would just kind of touch the cannon and it would move an inch, but that's moved on to 500 meters. And in Syria, you would sleep and you would hear the artillery getting closer and closer over hours. Three o'clock, it would be on top of you, your neighborhood, the building next door is getting hit. 
and it's like an hour and you think, I can't take this, I'm going to lose my mind. And then finally, it starts to move on. The artillery is now hitting the neighborhoods over there. And that was what it was like with these thunderstorms. You would hear them coming, and then you would just be under them for an hour or so. And then they would move on, and you thought, thank God, now it's tormenting my neighbor and not me anymore. But that's where the cocaine is produced. And this is where these militias are um, very powerful. You know, they often replace the state. That's the historic problem of Colombia. The state is just not present. It hasn't created the infrastructure to lure these farmers away from the illegal world of cocaine. If there was a minimum of order, education, and hospitals, these, these farmers would have options. I'll give you an example. Where I was staying with these coca farmers, they had just paid for and built their own uh, house, uh, school. They had had to build it themselves. It cost them about $10,000. They had done that by setting up a toll on this dirt track. Everybody who walked by just had to leave probably like, I'm guessing, but 50 cents, let's say 30 cents, 50 cents. It took them three years to get the money together. But what were all of these people, the business on this dirt track? People bringing coca leaves or bringing the ingredients necessary to produce cocaine. Cocaine built that school. That's crazy. And that is a disgrace for the Colombian government that it's not there, that the state needs to be there. When it's not there, other people step in. So cocaine produces this. So I'm out there. That's in the countryside. This is where the cocaine is produced. I go to the market town where the farmer, well, let me go back a step. So the farmer produces, grows the coca crops, this ugly um, green bush. He then harvests it. He hires Venezuelan immigrant laborers. He pays them like $10 a day, and they bring in 40, 50 kilos of um, coca leaves. He takes it to what's called a laboratory in Colombia. They call them that. Really, it's this kind of makeshift jungle lab. It's four posts, a piece of plastic, and some concrete built in the jungle. That's where he turns the coca leaves into something called coca paste. It's like this one kilo. It's still not cocaine yet. Again, coca paste. And it's a three-day process, really. He kind of mixes in the ammonia, the sulfuric acid, the gasoline. Now he's got this tiny little one kilo he's ready to sell. This is mainly what each farmer will produce, probably about, you can, in Colombia, so fertile, you can get four harvests in a year. So he'll usually produce about 1.5, two kilos a harvest. The farmers don't have all of this vast amounts of coca anymore because they're scared of being spotted by satellites and the police. So then he goes to market town and he sells that. That's, he probably sells that for about 1.6 million, $400, let's call it. Jump in and interrupt me if any point there's anything. What's interesting is that something I can report back that I hadn't seen reported before. I've been covering these guys for 15 years. The amount they get for this coca paste is 1.6 million pesos. That's $400, as I said. When I first started doing that 15 years ago, that was a huge amount of money. And what you would see is these towns on the weekend, it was like you know the gold rush here in this country, Deadwood. It was lawless towns. Everybody's making money. There's prostitution everywhere. There's kind of just everybody's always drunk. $1.6 million, $400, 15 years ago. These guys were buying bottles of whiskey. They were going out. It's all part of the tradition. They would go pick up prostitutes. They would spend, uh, go with one or two prostitutes on Saturday, one or two prostitutes on Sunday. Then they would go back home, as the joke says, with, you know, um, a few pennies in their pocket and a bunch of sad stories for the wife. That was the joke, right? 
Now that price hasn't risen in 15 years. So now these cocoa farmers are just depressed about the business. If someone came to them and gave them a realistic prospect, they would turn on it. They would leave cocaine because the money's not there. And they know it. And they're, they're, they're just, they're, they're constantly well, moaning. Wasn't there an attempt to, to move them to coffee or that never transpired? There were, there, there were these kind of attempts at crop substitution. I mean, it's kind of these two approaches, the American government working with the Colombian government in this partnership, sometimes it's about the stick. So they just fumigate, fumigate. They stopped being able to fumigate once it was decided possibly uh, the World Health Organization said that the fumigator, the, the what would it be? The in, not the insecticide. The, um, uh, the, the uh, what do you call the agent? The herbicide. The agent. Yeah, exactly. the herbicide. Uh, <sighs> exactly. That this could cause cancer. Could cause cancer. And there was a court case here of a janitor or a groundsman who won something like two hundred ninety million dollars from the producers of this uh, agent. So they stop in two thousand sixteen. And now there has been these kind of attempts at crop substitution over the years. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. But I think it's clear this is the way to work with the farmers. You can't just beat them with a stick because they're, they're poor to start with. The reason they grow coca is because they're on a mountainside. And if you grew a ton of pineapples, how are you going to get that to market where there's no bridge? How are you going to get all of this to market when you know you've got I don't know pumpkins, two tons of pumpkins? Well, there's no road to take it. So, two tons of pumpkins, or remember what I said, something the size of this. Wow! Put it in your backpack, wow. and then you go to town and you sell this, and everybody will always buy coca. It's not like pumpkins. Maybe they don't want to buy pumpkins. They'll always buy. I. Detail in my book, this experiment they did as part of a peace process with the FARC guerrillas that happened in 2016. There was this town called Briseño. It's in Antioquia, probably about three or four hours away from the city of Medellin. And the government went to this town, which was known to grow coca, and said, look, we've got a plan for you. You're going to be our pilot program. We're going to help you get off coca. And there was discussions amongst the, the farmers there. They didn't know whether to trust the government or not. But finally, they were so proud because often the countryside is ignored by the capital cities, the urban part. They were so proud that they were going to have their part to play in making the new Colombia. They got back to the government and said, yes, we will, we will work with you. As part of this, what was supposed to happen was the farmers would get a stipend every month in order so they could live. Then they would get money over the course of two years to set up a new project could be chickens, could be coffee, whatever you want. But to start this process, they had to rip out all of their coca. They did it. They ripped out every single piece of coca in that municipality. The government stipends arrive. It's okay. But suddenly, there's just there's problems. The project money is not coming through. Well, the stipend is just survival. That's, that, you can't advance with that. That's just to make sure you and your family can eat the project money, then there's problems with paperwork, the bureaucracy takes over. And at some point, it just seemed like the government just lost interest. I went there two years after that, they were so disenchanted. They felt used, cheated. And this farmer told me, his nickname was Bojo, chicken. I asked him, why do you have that name? He said, I like to eat chicken as a child. I mean, you know, I thought it was going to be a bit more something than that. But he told me, we're ready to go back to coke at any moment. The government and will never give up next time. We'll never believe the government again. Uh, so I think it's this really sad story. And this is kind of a lot of the history of the drug war in Colombia.
a solution that cannot be sustained is not a solution at all. In fact, you'd be better off not even proposing one that you can't sustain. 100%. And I ought to just to preface this conversation as well. We are in the golden age of cocaine right now. There has never, ever whoa, been as whoa, much whoa, cocaine whoa, 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 as there is right now. So, um, <laughs> challenging, and, challenging moment. <laughs> no, uh, and I know the answer to this, but I was sort of uh, half joking with Pete earlier is that uh, we still have a cocaine problem. And I say that because, you know, the media is on to other things right now in this country. And, and even before what was going on at the border and what was going on in Afghanistan and the economy, uh, everything was focused heroin, heroin, heroin. It was almost like there was no more cocaine problem, which I know that's not the case. So um, I'm, I'm not surprised. Well, well, let me let me back up. I am surprised that you say that this is the golden years. Why? Just for the fact there's more cocaine being produced than ever before. <laughs> so Pablo Escobar couldn't have possibly dreamed of the amount of cocaine that is out there now. Where's that it going? Where's it going? It's going all across the world. So essentially. The U.S. has always been the number one consumer, not always, but you know, has been the number one consumer. There's bigger pushes going into um, going into Europe, but cocaine is capitalism. It follows new markets, and they're aware that India, China has a, too, right, a, a burgeoning yeah. middle class. You know, there's new millionaires there, and cocaine, for whatever reason, we have collectively as a society decided that cocaine is synonymous with. Uh, with um, with wealth, uh, kind of, it's the champagne of narcotics. Mm-hmm. It's incredible to me that we've just we, we allocate all of those qualities to it, seen as stylish, elegant, whatever our thoughts about it. We know that that. So if you're a newly minted millionaire in Bombay, maybe the way you want to show off to your friends to show you've really made it on a Friday night, you've got ten grams of cocaine. <sighs> and so if you look at how cocaine has been. It always follows the economic boom. In 1980s London and New York, it was there. In the 90s in Russia, as they're going through all of that, the new billionaires, the oligarchs, there it is. The rise of economies in places like Lagos, Nigeria, you start seeing cocaine, South Africa. So cocaine's really finding all of these new markets and keeps on coming here. Obviously, the pandemic uh, really kind of changed things, but we were looking at figures, this would be what, 2019, early 2020, we were looking at figures in places like Miami, and people there were sounding the warning bells that they were seeing overdoses for cocaine shoot up. And there was already a lot higher reported usage of cocaine in the black community. And some people in the black community thought it was unfair that the media wasn't focusing on this in the way that the media had been focusing on the overdoses in the white community of heroin. They said, well, you know, now we're dying of overdoses, where's the media? So there were these hints that cocaine was doing it. Then the pandemic steps in, and then that became the number one news. I'll say one thing more about this. The level of the overdose risk from cocaine, while obviously it is there, is not at the same level as we just see with fentanyl and heroin. So I do think there is a difference in that difference of just the opioid epidemic was just 
these people dying of overdoses in these tiny towns in Virginia, Ohio, and it was just devastating. Because we're not seeing that level of death, I think it's going under. But all of those cocaine is the result. It shows, you know, it's 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 making these drug traffickers millionaires, billionaires, and making these cartels extremely powerful. And it's financing gangs, militias across, and terrorism in some cases across the world. But the the level of death amongst those people, I don't think has gone down. Um, amongst the cartels uh, vying for power and uh, using firearms and explosives to keep everyone in line, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think it is evolving, though, because cocaine is smart. Cocaine is constant evolution. So what I think they found in Colombia was there was a tendency to stay away from... It's interesting to compare and contrast Mexico, which Mexico just gets... Seems to be, again, I'm no expert in Mexico, but just seeing the headlines, just worse and worse. And mm-hmm. it's just this awful situation. Colombia has been an interesting contrast. It seems that over the last 10 years or so, the cartels have kind of bide away from more public displays of violence. I think the thinking being, why cause trouble for yourself? So five years ago, you would still see Mexican capos giving interviews and saying, I'm the biggest boss there is in this country. The Colombian capos worked out 20 years ago by the time your face is on the front page of a newspaper, you are, you are daring the government to answer for you. You go to the top of the list for the CIA, the DEA, the Colombian army. Why bother? So they evolved this new type of um, drug trafficker that they call the invisible in Colombia. So it's basically someone who looks like they could be a young CEO, a young man. It tends to be men in Colombia, man of business, an international, you know, and so he dresses well. It's not like the guys we had 30 years ago who proudly came from the countryside and as you, you know, with pistols stuck in there. No, these guys want to make you think that they're an international businessman. And they think, and what's interesting is they're renegotiating the deal in cocaine because the deal in cocaine always was. I get into the business of cocaine. I live like a king, but I may not see 35. That was always the deal. You're ready to die. And I interview this drug trafficker in my book, and he's kept on saying, I'm never going to see 50. Now, the invisibles want to change that. They want to get into cocaine, make all of the money, and retire and die in their deathbed at age 75. So it's a kind of interesting, different culture there. They're not looking for these out-and-out bursts of violence. They're trying to kind of keep a low profile. That's certainly the case in Colombia. Now, there's a lot of chaos in the market because there's in these zones, there's so many new narco militias. The reason being, just very briefly, is we had this historic peace process with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia in 2016, the FARC. The essence of that deal was the FARC controlled much of the land where the coca was grown, where the cocaine is really produced. The FARC said to the government between the lines, we own all of this territory. We're going we're to lower our guns. You have to come in and take over this. Because if you don't, someone else will. And whoever does and comes in will start hunting us now that we've lowered our arms. We're trusting you to take care of this. So please send in troops and secure all of these zones. Bring in a minimum of law and order. The government didn't do it. So it was all of these vast fields, hundreds of thousands of hectares of coca were just left unguarded. It was like a starting pistol. All of these groups moved in seeking to take control of that. Now you have all of these different groups all across. We used to have one, the FARC. Now there's dozens of groups across the country. It's chaos. Wow. 
Um, when I was in the mix, when I was a detective, there was a, uh, that period of time where the Colombian just outsourced all transportation to the Mexican uh, cartels to get it through uh, and into the United States. And then in some areas, it would just stay with the Mexican uh, cartels, but in other areas, they would pick it back up again. What's going on today with uh, the Colombians? Are they still outsourced? Because the transportation is always, um, and I know we spoke that that's not necessarily your focus, but but clearly these decisions are made in Colombia. So do Absolutely. the, do the cartels again, stay it, away from transportation still, the Colombians? It, again, it's all of these business decisions. So there was this time period, I, I can't remember exactly when it would have been, but the Colombians started doing, as you say, business with the Mexicans. Previously in the 1980s, when the Colombians really wanted to control everything from production to literally the street corner sale in New York, they would try and get the cocaine straight into Colombia, often via Miami. Well, the hardest bit is the last 10% to actually get it into the United States. You're losing a lot of cocaine and you're opening yourself up to being arrested. You know, you're messing around. You've got a cartel guy in New York. That guy's very vulnerable. How are you communicating with him or her? You know, it just makes them very vulnerable. So as a business decision, they said, we're going to lose a lot of money on selling each kilo of cocaine, but it's the Mexicans' problem. You know, if they get it across or don't, it's not our problem anymore. So a kilo of cocaine, roughly, my figures might be out, but they roughly should be. A kilo of cocaine in New York City goes for around $40,000. They'll sell it to Mexicans for $10,000. You've got a chance of $40,000, but you've got a chance that it falls at the last hurdle, or you've got an almost guaranteed $10,000. So that's what they do. So the Colombians basically will agree mainly to get the cocaine to um, Mexico, and then the Mexican cartels take over. So there was another part of the book where I'm with the, um, with the US Coast Guard, which is patrolling the most important cocaine corridor on the planet, which is the Eastern Pacific. So it's the coast that leaves kind of Ecuador and Colombia, goes all under Central America, and they love to drop off the cocaine at the Guatemalan-Mexican border. That's a real strong point for them. It's real cartel territory. So they'll have speedboats, which will try and do the journey in 48 hours. They're just two, three, four tons of cocaine going as fast as they can. Or there will be the semi-submarines, which are almost entirely underwater with just a few pipes above the surface to bring in, um, to bring in the oxygen and expel the exhaust from the motors. I spent two and a half weeks with the Coast Guard, and I really saw what they were doing. I mean, it's wild out there. They are stomping on so much cocaine, and no one knows about it. They're seizing more cocaine than everybody else combined. They were telling me, I mean, there's a joke, I start this chapter, that we've got something like four, um, four tons behind us, and the guy says, hey, you know, uh, got a buddy uh, the sheriff's office back home, and I can't remember where it was, like Idaho or something, says, you know, they get excited for one kilo and they all start laughing because there's four tons of it, there, 4,000 kilos. And that's what these guys are doing every single time. They told me if they get less than half a ton, less than 500 kilos, they're kind of disappointed. These guys are picking up seven, eight tons of times. <laughs> eight tons is a lot of cocaine. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, actually, you're absolutely right. There's been a, a, a number of seizures in the news lately yeah. involving tons, multiple, yeah. multiple tons. 
Well, that goes back to the argument that this is the golden age. The U.S. had its biggest seizure ever. I think it was 19 tons in this boat just off of Philadelphia, That's right. if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Costa Rica had its world uh, record. London has had record seizures. Germany. If you start piecing it together like I do, you realize, my God. And this was the first thing I thought because the Coast Guard picked me up in Costa Rica. We drove, sailed on this huge Coast Guard uh, cutter called the James, this half billion dollar cutter. It's just this work of art. It's huge. So there's a crew of like 140 on board. It's a huge thing we're going. It does a mission for three months just going around the Eastern Pacific. We sail out of that port. Within 12 hours, they've made their first capture of a boat laden down with cocaine. And I was thinking, the first I was like, man, that's a, my first thought was, how much cocaine is out there? I mean, if we're just stumbling across this guy, obviously we weren't stumbling, but there's a lot of cocaine out there. Now, well, how bad does that hurt them? That the producers, when you're when you're seizing tons of cocaine, I mean, the, the, is there a lag time now to build back up again? Or, I mean, like you say, how much is out there? I mean, it it can hurt an individual smallish trafficker. Yes, um, yes, it will. Um, but the big cartels, I mean, it's the cost of doing business, and there's so much money to be made on the next shipment. I, and they're buying this, I mean, the markup, a kilo of cocaine in Colombia will cost you around, I think it's $1,600. Uh, 1600 They're selling it for 10000 That's just to the Mexican. I mean, that's a huge markup. That's $8,500 on each kilo. So, yeah, you know, you lose, and a small trafficker can be knocked out of business um, with a seizure like that, but others, you know. I, I was always told that the, the difference between uh, the Colombian government and the Mexican government was that when it comes to uh, narcotics, was that the Mexicans sort of turned a blind eye to that, where the Colombians did not. But what I'm hearing from you, I think, is that there's more that can be done in Colombia as well. Yeah, I mean... Because I mean, they've lost a lot of of innocent people, government official, judges, cops, they've lost a heck of a lot more than we have in the United yep. States. And uh, so they have, you know, they have skin in the game here. A hundred percent. And there's an old saying about this that, you know, no one has bled as much as Colombia in the war on drugs. Uh, it's, you know, it's absolutely devastating what's happened to that country. And in terms of soldiers, police officers, yeah, I mean, just a lot of people have died in this war. But the problem is, is there's so much money to be made. It's made corruption rampant, the tentacles of cocaine. There was, interestingly, in the middle of the 1980s, there was a big debate about whether the army should be used to confront the cartels, because certainly in the 1980s, the kind of Cold War in all of South America, Latin America, the idea was politicians openly said, we can't afford to lose our army. We can't afford to have them corrupted because they're the backbone of our nation. That was the constant fear that when you send people to fight cocaine, which has so much money, it can bribe a lot of people. It can pick them off. The amount of people who have been um, politicians who have got into uh, who have been bribed by the cartels. I mean, it's astonishing. And I, I, I don't know if I mean Colombia can 
I would say instead of framing the conversation around can Colombia do more, I think we need to look at the conversation about how differently can we do this? Because Colombia has been, you know, been doing this for at least two decades. It's been longer, but just, you know, go back in time. The last major foreign policy initiative under the Clinton government, warmly embraced by George Bush 20 years ago, 21 years ago, was Plan Colombia. This plan for like $7.5 billion. And the plan was that they were going to train up the police. They were going to give them Black Hawk helicopters. And the goal was, they said, within, I think it was within three or five years, the immediate goal of Plan Colombia will be to cut coca crops by 50%. Fast forward to today, there's more coca than ever. The government announces a new plan. It says in three years, we want to cut coca crops by 50%. We've had enough time with this model. It's clearly not working. I, it just, I don't know what comes next. I don't. And that's for other people to decide. But what we are doing is clearly not working. And just to do another two decades of this, this churning of young men and women just dead on street corners for this war on drugs, it just breaks my heart. And I hope we kind of wake up and say, no, let's do something different. I don't, and I'll say one final thing as well about this. I don't want to go too hard on Colombia because yes, Colombia needs to answer to the world and say, why is it producing more cocaine than ever before? That's a, that's a question the world can ask of Colombia. But Colombia can ask of the world its own question. Why have you don't, not done anything to lower consumption in your country? Because this business thrives on demand. And it's that simple. I don't know of a single Good policy point. in the US or the UK that is successfully lowering, what are we doing with our kids in school to get, I don't know of anything that works. I know we spend money on stupid publicity campaigns. I don't think it works. I don't even think we pretend it works. Ask a 15 year old kid, what do you think about <laughs> the campaign telling you not, probably laugh. I don't know what the answer to that is either. But this is, the, the, you know, it's demand. We put the problem on Colombia when it's also it's all of our problem. Point. And it doesn't seem that we've been able to arrest our way out of the problem either. Yeah. There's always someone new to ready to take their place. I mean, even when we take the biggest people, do anyone really think Mexico slowed for one second when we took down El Chapo? When Pablo Escobar? Of course not. There's always someone ready to step up. And it's in my book as well. There's this moment where I'm speaking to um, this drug trafficker and he asks me, he said, this was 2000, you know, anyway, it was, we were looking at the legalization of marijuana. He said, he was, and he said, I'm looking at, I'm looking at this in the US. Is this reversible? I said, um, I, I don't think so. And he got angry. And he was you know, one of these drug traffickers who, you know, got angry and, it was, you know, they, these guys are used to being listened to. And he got angry and kind of slapped the table. And it was like, well, why are they messing around with this? You know? We take the risks, they try and stop us. That's the business. What, 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 they don't like the idea of legalization because legalization, I'm not, again, advocating this. I'm just throwing it out there. I, I don't have a position on this. But legalization takes all of the profit away. The reason they can charge $10,000 a kilo is because of the black market. It's crazy to me what we do. We create this black market that makes monsters millionaires. Al Capone, what would he have been without prohibition? He would have been no one. He would have been standing around on some street corner, running numbers, had a few <laughs> prostitutes, you know, extortion racket of a local bar. We made him a millionaire. We made Pablo Escobar. Again, I'm not saying legalization is the right, but we've got to make we I, we've got to steer away from what we've been doing. You, you know, 
the truth is the longest war that we've been involved in is the war on drugs from the 60s. When, when does that ever end? And we're losing. I mean, take a moment just to say, how's this war going? We're losing. I mean, it, what was it? It's the 50th. I think it was this year. That's right. It was the 50th anniversary of the first time Richard Nixon said a war on drugs. You must have some thoughts. You, you must have some views on this problem. I, I know you just said a minute ago you don't have the answers, but you must have some thoughts. Being What? If what we're doing for the last, what, 50 years hasn't been working, what could work? China, they kill people that use drugs, that they catch using drugs. Is that going to work if we killed people? I, I, I think we, again, I would be interested. It just occurred to me as I was writing this book because, you know, we, I'm old enough to remember that just say no, Nancy, Nancy Reagan, right? And it was a joke then. <laughs> yeah, your brain on drugs. I mean, um, but I, it just struck me. It's like, we don't know why kids use drugs. We got, but honestly, I mean, I can throw, but we don't really know. I, so I don't know moving forward. If we can't even figure out that part, why do different, I remember it was fascinating for me to go to um, Amsterdam when I was, you know, like in my teenage years. And it was so interesting at that time. Now I've understood that it's changed now. You would go to Amsterdam and obviously there were the coffee shops, right? And it was filled with English and German people, but there was no Dutch in there. It was very rare. They just, oh, no, no, thank you. That's not for me. I just don't, I don't know. It's not really, I, it's not something I particularly like. I think it's changed a bit now, but it was so interesting to see these English people smoking so much marijuana, they would fall off a chair in a coffee shop. And the Dutch just, it, they weren't interested in that. I, I don't know. I, I, I'll say this about legalizers. I think there's a couple of things I kind of, in my own mind, I have like the aunt stroke uncle reaction. And that is, imagine a Sunday lunch, turn around to your uncle or aunt who's sitting next to you and just say, you know what, I think cocaine ought to be sold in pharmacies all across the country and watch their mouth drop open. That's what most people think, right? Right. So we do have this problem, but I think the legalizers kind of say, well, obviously it's going to end up with legalization because what else could work? And I say, if you look at the amount of effort and work that went into the hardcore advocates who managed to get marijuana legalized, that was a 50-year project by these guys. They really took it seriously. They found celebrities to endorse it. They set up this kind of thing of medical marijuana. Yeah, all right. I mean, you know, look, they wanted to legalize it. All's fair in love and war, but medical marijuana. I mean, yeah, it's not really a thing, is it? But, you know, again, go for it. You know. But that was them recruiting politicians by politicians what are the legalizers doing? They're not doing anything. They're sitting back and saying, oh, well, obviously the war on drugs is a failure. You guys are going to have to legalize. It's a political thing. You have to win that political argument. And the support for legalizing drugs must be barely in two digits, right? <laughs> I mean, what, at maximum 20% agree with that? Well, well, it might be the solution, but you need to have that political argument. You need to win that political battle. And it just seems to me that they're just like, oh, yeah, you know, we're right. Well, so what? That's not what politics is. Just uh, So I don't know. I just would say that, please, could we just change from what we're doing? Because I've seen so many Colombians in my expertise, so many Colombians cut down in this. And, you know, you guys, I'm sure have seen it as well, the costs of this war, both amongst your colleagues and amongst the 
private citizens, the people who get wrapped up in this drug war in the streets of the U.S. It, it's it's heartbreaking. So I, I'm out in California, and uh, you know, pot is legal here, but yet just last night on the news, they're talking about all these illegal pot grow ups in uh, in in the various uh, uh, rural areas of California, in the mountains, and everywhere else, um, and. Um, they're constantly having to raid these uh, illegal grow ops. Um, so, I mean, I don't understand it. Uh, it's it's legal. They could, people could buy it where they want to, but yet there's still a market for illegal pot. Yeah. Yeah. As I say, I I, I just don't know. I I. It just it's it's just painful to see this kind of torturous war inflicted, this plague on Colombia that it just can't seem to shake off. And that's, you know, it's got its own problems. There's a reason why cocaine could take root in a country like that. There was a long history of political violence. Again, as I said, this kind of central government that has been unable to really extend its control over its territory and a very treacherous territory. You know, Colombia, I think someone said, territory is destiny. I mean, that that country is so treacherous. There's always one more jungle you can hide in. That's why they can never win these civil wars, because the guerrillas can just always find something. I mean, I'll give you an example. When I flew out to this beautiful place in the, the capital of Colombia's Amazon region. It's called a town called Leticia. You would fly up out of Bogota. You would spend 15 minutes um, flying over like, you know, farms heading towards the Amazon. You would spend an hour and a half flying over a sea of green uh, treetops. You wouldn't see, you, you wouldn't see anything. You wouldn't see a settlement. You wouldn't see a house. You wouldn't see a clearing. You wouldn't see a river. It was just nonstop. You know, I mean, how are you going to secure that? I guess that's the problem, right? You, you know, the gorillas go in there. You'll never find them. But, and, you know, that was proven when we had those American kidnapped uh, hostages. The contractors, they spent five years as hostages of the FARC because they just kept on being moved around in these jungle camps. You know, putting, putting uh, marijuana aside a second, when it comes to cocaine, when I was a street agent, um, it, I, I mean, I just seen lives ruined over this. Uh, once people are addicted to it, I've seen smart, uh, productive young people just ruin their lives and ruin their families over over cocaine. I think that's true. I mean, we had the really bad version is the in Colombia is this version called bazooko. And it's kind of imagine just a variant like crack cocaine. And we did this story once and we went to this rehabilitation clinic and it still haunts me that there was, you know, it's basically homeless people that had been brought in because by the time you're a heavy bazooka addict, you don't have a home left. You've sold everything. Mm. And this guy told me, and there was this really interesting, these intellectuals, poets, musicians who were all kind of together and just a delight to speak to these men, just the, the, the level of conversation was this high, right? And this guy tells me he came from this important regional family. He was the, I'm trying to, I want to get it right. I think he said he was the grandson of the first black general in Colombian history. So, you know, that's a very proud tradition this guy's coming from, right? And he said he came to, um, uh, he said he came to the um, city of Bogota with, Anyway, he said he spent through all of his family's savings in the space of two weeks, everything. 
including, he said, the worst day was when he, his, sis, uh, his daughter was kicked out of university because he had spent her university fund. She was called into the director's office. And so these things, it's just devastating. I, I think that's the version with this and the version of crack cocaine. I will say, I think a lot of people, my gut feeling about the majority of usage of cocaine as a powder is slightly different that it's a stage people go through. And they essentially go through it without any lasting effects. I do think that is different from heroin. I think there is, again, this contrast. I don't know anything about the heroin industry or the usage, but I think cocaine, when you see it, it's very prevalent in actors, the media. You know, it is this drug that is often used. And I think a lot of people go through a phase of perhaps one month, two years, and then they kind of just leave it behind because it's just not useful anymore. That's my feeling. And I think the minority of the ones who really do end up losing. I think that's what I would say. When it goes wrong with these drugs, it goes about as wrong as it can get. You know, uh, you're basically homeless. You can send yourself onto the street in a question of weeks. Hey, Toby, if I heard you correctly, um, in comparing, not that you said this, but what I what I was able to tease out is when you're comparing Colombia with Aleppo, uh, there's a constant, there's violence, but it seems that there is much more order in Colombia because it's tied to business. Am I accurate in saying that? And if I am, were you ever scared in Colombia? Because I, I would imagine you would be scared in Aleppo, particularly when they're shooting mortars at you. Yeah, I mean, Aleppo was a... Um... Aleppo was a transformative experience. I was there in uh, 2012. Um, so I had met, you know, I mean, these are the hor horrible figures. James Foley, who we all know, you know, uh, that was that time. I left at the beginning of 2013, but I was there at that stage of the revolution, and they called it a revolution, the people I was with, these rebels, where they seemed to be saying that they knew what they were fighting for. It was kind of distressing to come back to Colombia sometimes and just not know why someone just got shot dead. I lived in a certain part of Bogota, a very kind of, it, it, it was a kind of, you know, I mean, it, imagine taxi driver in the seventies, but times it by a hundred, that was the kind of zone I lived in, you know, kind of a lot of street prostitution, a lot of street drug dealing, but it also a kind of really funky, interesting neighborhood. A lot of artists lived there, but you know, there was a lot of sex workers and I walk out my door and a sex worker would have been stabbed to death. And it was, and I kind of felt like I understood why people were dying and killing in Syria because they did have, I mean, not whether you agree with it, but it was a coherent kind of understanding of I fight to support the government or I fight for this revolution. When I was there, I think Syria took a real nosedive and really got a bloodlust at some point, and it just lost all types of meaning. Colombia felt like this was just generations in this whirlpool of violence. Um, and it, 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 sometimes it's tied to the business and sometimes it's when you grow up in a culture that's very, very violent, that leaves a mark. We all know that. And this is a country that I think has traumatized itself and passed on that trauma to um, its children. A friend of mine, that's the constant thing. Well, it it in sounds America. like I had it reversed then. It sounds like there was, <laughs> there was more order in Aleppo than there was in Colombia. Wow. When I was there in Aleppo, it was. Yeah. Again, I, I can't speak for what happened later because I do think it changed a lot. But yeah, it felt like 
this was a war in a way that a war can be orderly and men and women were taking incredible risks. Colombia just yanks on the soul, man. I mean, it's that, that violence. And this is the beauty of living in Latin America. And I don't see it in England or America. I could be wrong. But in Latin America, you can open a bottle of rum and get to really deep questions immediately. And everyone in that cantina, in that corner shop, in that bar is in. There might be one guy, ah, you know, but you know, you can talk about anything. So you can sit in the most uneducated corner of that country with farmers who dropped out of school when they were eight. And if you kind of bring up, hey guys, you know, why is this country so violent? Everybody will give their opinion. And it's that, it's that embracing of these big questions over a beer that I love doing. So it would often come up, why is Colombia so violent? And a good, good friend of mine, Memo, said to me one time, we've been drinking whiskey, it must have been three o'clock in the morning or something. He said, it's our mothers that do it. This is his point of view. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but he said, it's our mothers. I said, what do you mean? That's the first time I'd ever heard this. He said, they teach us to hate other Colombians. Because when you're eight years old, they dress you up, they put, and they tell you at the door, don't let anyone take advantage of you. Watch out for everybody, be on your defense, get ready. So they create this war against war. Everybody's a potential enemy. Well, if everybody's a potential enemy, then I've got to defend myself. Anything's, anything's fair game. Now, in the mother's defense, my God, if you sent a child into the street without that warning, they would be skinned by lunchtime. You know, I mean, this is the joke about Colombians have when foreigners come in, they're like, you guys aren't ready for this country. Everything can, you know, they can rip you off this way. They can cheat you this way. They could rob you this way. They could kidnap you this way. Please. The Colombians become so protective of foreigners. Let me walk with you. I don't want you to get ripped off. I don't want you to get mugged. I'm going to walk with you back to your hotel. It's a very common thing in Colombia. So I don't have the answers, but, you know, it's this ongoing question that Colombians ask themselves often at three o'clock in the morning after half a bottle of whiskey when, you know, the good decisions are often reached. So what was the moment that you said to yourself, maybe I should have picked another job? Um, that you thought that um, may, maybe that uh, you wouldn't go go back home to your your residence that night. Syria was much worse. It, Mosul, I was there for the war for Mosul. That was worse. But Colombia is this kind of ongoing dread, and you, you're surrounded by men and women who live and die violence, right? and that thing, it, gets, it gets you. It's, as I say, it's this kind of just vortex of violence, and you're kind of. And it just being around them is like murder is always a second away. You know, I was having lunch with this drug trafficker and he just, you know, he gets into this argument with the waiter and I'm like, just leave it, leave it, you know. And it's and the drug trafficker's getting more and more angry and he's agitated. And I'm like, just praying to this waiter, just leave it. I don't know what this guy's gonna do. There were times when we were out in the countryside, I think I mentioned, you know, these militias, you would uh, just drunkenly said they were gonna kill me. There was, uh, you would often, often got caught in firefights between the rebels, not often, but enough times, between the rebels firing at, at this uh, army helicopter out in the countryside, and they were using us as kind of, kind of like a human shield. I mean, they were kind of set us aside. We, they were in the forest there. We were walking on a path, and the helicopter was there, and they were firing over our heads. And um, that was just a long run to get through. Yeah, it's, you know, it can be, um, th those are the ones that occur to me oh, at the moment. Wow. So, Toby, what are you working on now that is, uh, that's scratching that 
itch of uh, of uh, uh, exploring these new horizons. Yeah, so I'm working on a novel, uh, just kind of about war correspondence. I think that's um, I, I'm trying to you know see if I can work that on that. Another thing I'm doing is um, I'm kind of playing around with the idea of of um, I kind of it feels strange. Just a, a kind of memoir about covering the war on drugs. Um, I think that's you know just the kind of the, the people who I didn't get a chance to include in this book uh, because you know the focus of this book was on the, on the kilo of cocaine. But uh, yeah, I'm just uh, to, yeah, I had uh, this long friendship with this um, with this killer for uh, this. Um, the, the far right death squads, the paramilitaries, and it kind of helped me understand Colombia in one sense as well because it, this man didn't know how many people he'd killed—two uh, hundred, perhaps—and it became this kind of friendship. He would phone me from prison. He was in prison serving his time, and he'd phone me like every night. And this went on for about six months, and we would talk at eleven o'clock each night. Lights out for him. Um, he tried to set me up with his cousin and stuff. And it was this very strange. But at the end of it, I realized I had been dealing with an absolute psychopath. And I hadn't understood that before that, that he, he entirely understood the world as prey and predator, and that I was just prey in this. And he manipulated me, he manipulated people around. And I think that kind of gave me a glimpse into this. I was like, there, sometimes there isn't any explanation for the violence. It's just violence for the sake of violence. So that's kind of what I'm working on. And, you know, yeah. A uh, bunch of stuff. Everything's kind of up in the air, the way it should be. Did you ever see him in prison? Did you ever visit there? Oh yeah, that's how I got to know him. Sorry, I should have said that. Yeah, he was this kind of he was responsible for this kind of very famous massacre called El Aro, and we were kind of doing a documentary about him. Um, they killed like just in that one massacre. It was this horrible moment when the far right death squads would arrive to this tiny mountain town, and they would have this orgy of violence. They would rape women. They would bring the men into the into the main plaza, kill them in front of people. And he, he, he uh, was in charge of that massacre. He was the commander of this. Uh, he goes to prison. He's been in prison for years by the time I meet him. And I decide to do a documentary about the daughter of one of his victims who died in that massacre going to visit him in prison. And it was interesting that he conned me. Really, he did con me because he kind of made me think, oh, he wants this new life. He wants to be forgiven. And interestingly, well, for obvious reasons, I guess, he never conned the daughter of his victim. She saw through him immediately. So this guy, you know, he's broken. He, you know, he's, this guy doesn't want anything. He, he's, he's playing. Yeah. And I think he was. So um, what's life like in a Colombian prison? God, nah. I mean, these, uh, these riots that occur in prisons all across Latin America, you know, you'll see these massacres as these gangs go at it, and there will be 50, 100 dead. Um, the funny thing, when I was going into interviewing one time, we saw that because he was, because of his crime, a lot of people wanted to kill him. You know, if you were a figure of the far right death squad, or you were a very, um, a big communist guerrilla, or, you know, if you're a big drug trafficker, a lot of people want to kill you. So what I saw them do, these two prison guards, one's filming as this guy brings along this kind of tray. And the guy's filming it. I was like, what the hell's going on here? Well, that's in case to show that if he dies of something, they can say they didn't put the poison in. So it's literally filming this meal as it goes from the kitchen 
just to hand over that tape and say, <laughs> on our watch, poison wasn't put in that Wow. <laughs> and that, so, um, yeah, in these prisons. But on the other hand, you know, I, it's – it's it's crazy the overcrowding is awful i mean and well let me just say that it's crazy the overcrowding is so bad that literally men take turns to sleep on the floor next to the urinals 24 hours a day you have that spot you may have to sleep there at eight to ten next to the urinal literally under the urinal and the neck i mean i can't be more graphic than this it's as bad as it sounds it's not like oh on one side and no you're sleeping there that's the overcrowding people set up um hammocks on the side of the walls to kind of but on the other hand you know these people get conjugal visits this guy had actually ended up uh this his name was francisco francisco would have friends send prostitutes in and he got a prostitute pregnant and you just think <sighs> how could a prostitute think that any of this was a good idea <laughs> to have a I mean, maybe she thought he had a lot of money because he was quite a powerful person within the far right desk squads. They were drug traffickers, so they had their own money. Maybe she thought, hey, you know, but anyway, I just talk about just bad decisions. I mean, a lot of people make really bad decisions. And the kid looked identical to Francisco. And it was very chilling to think, what genes did this baby get? (laughs) Hey, Toby, uh, I know, speaking for Pete, we could... We could talk to you all night. Uh, this is just incredible. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. For I hope me we on. could have you on again. Absolutely, um, you're Let's phenomenal. Um, but until that time, where is it the the best place for folks to find you? Um, you can find my website tobymuse.com, T-O-B-Y-M-U-S-E.com. I'm also on Twitter. I think I'm at Toby Muse and uh, Kilo the book. You know, yes. this is the paperback is out. It came out over the summer. This is the American version. Uh, you can pick this up at, uh, you know, let me just get it in there. Uh, I can, there we go. We'll, um, we'll put it in the show notes too. Kilo, fantastic. Inside the Deadliest Cocaine Cartels from the Jungles to the Streets by Toby Muse. That's right. Wow. Just some, you, well, you got some stories, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should share, share some when we meet in person over a good bottle of rum. Uh, I agree. Pete, anything? Santa Uh-oh. Teresa, right? Santa Teresa. You won't regret it. 17... 1796. From Venezuela. 96. You can't 17, I, I can't read my own writing. 1796. <laughs> and if you don't like it, send it to me. I'll buy it off you. I'll always <laughs> okay. look out for more Santa Teresa. That's a deal. I'm going to buy it. All right. Hey, Toby, thank you, and uh, thank you be guys. careful out there. I uh, I run down your way every once in a while, so uh, I'll look you up, and uh, I'd love to share some rum with you. Absolutely. And it doesn't Consider have to be in the summer invitation. either. We'll do it in the winter. That's right. It's yeah. an open invitation. Oh, thank you, sir. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, guys. Pretty good, Pete, huh? Oh, someone is on mute. Someone is on mute. Who could that be? There you I are. don't know how these uh, war correspondents and people, I mean, you know, <sighs> I, I'm used to, I'm used to going places with a half an army with me. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and these and guys and are packed. out there, but yeah. they're out there. Yeah. Packed and, 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 and racked and everything else. But these guys are out there on their own. Essentially they might have a cameraman if they're lucky, but um, I you know. And, and you're with the rebels, right? Well, what about <laughs> what about the main country that sent an aircraft at you and everything else? 
Well, when, when, when he told that story about Aleppo, too, about taking in some mortar fire. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they don't care. I mean, they don't know that you're because you're a journalist. They're not going to drop one on you. Give me a break. Incredible stuff. I'm glad we had him on. Yeah. Jesus. All right, my friend. All right. Hey, thanks for another good episode here. And I'll uh, speak to you soon. Good night. Good night, pal.